news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi, I'm Rachel Kranz. I don't know about you, but I love the shit no one tells you about writing podcast. I love it not just because it's practical and gives me real tips that I can use in my writing practice, but I also love it for the sense of community it's provided me, even if remotely, as I listen to it. So much so that after my book Open came out, I decided I wanted to pay that idea of building community via podcast and being of service to other writers and human beings in general forward. So I've started a new show I want to tell you about called Help Existing. Now, each week, I'll be talking with a different guest about getting practical help on a specific aspect of existence. So this is going to be a show where we address all sorts of topics. There might be one week where we talk about how to address our fear of death, whereas the next week will be about how to figure out whether or not you want to have kids. There'll be lots of mindfulness. There'll be lots of authors joining us. And I think it'll be very useful to fans of this podcast because as writers, so much of what we need to learn to do is simply to be able to exist and observe and be in the moment with our own thoughts and with reality as it's unfolding around us. But sometimes that can be quite overwhelming. So I'm hoping this podcast will give you practical tools that will feed the quality of your life as well as your writing practice. Thanks so much, and I hope you'll subscribe to Help Existing. Today's guest was born in the UK, grew up in Switzerland, and moved to Canada in 2010. Her suspense novels include The Neighbours, bestsellers Her Secret Son and Sister Dear, and You Will Remember Me. She lives in Oakville, Ontario, with her husband and three sons. It's my pleasure to welcome back Hannah Mary McKinnon. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Bianca. It's lovely to be back. Appreciate yeah. it. 
it's wonderful to do a victory lap with you because the first time wasn't enough. And so it's awesome to get to to pick your brain again. Now, for our listeners, the book that we are talking about today is her latest, Never Coming Home. And I just want to give you a bit of an overview in terms of the flap copy for that. So first comes love, then comes murder. Dun, dun, dun. Lucas Forrester didn't hate his wife. Michelle was brilliant, sophisticated, and beautiful. Sure, she had extravagant spending habits, that petty attitude, a total disregard for anyone below her status, but she also had a lot to offer, most notably wealth that only the 1% could comprehend. For years, Lucas has been honing a flawless plan to inherit Michelle's fortune. Unfortunately, it involves taking a hit out on her. Every track is covered, no trace left behind, and now Lucas plays the grieving husband so well, he deserves an award. But when a shocking photo and cryptic note show up on his doorstep, Lucas goes from hunter to prey. Someone is onto him, and they're closing in. So, Hannah, tell us a bit about this concept, how it came to you, and a bit about the writing of this book before we get into the nitty-gritty. All right, with pleasure. So, Never Coming Home is unlike my other novels in the sense that it didn't come from, the inspiration for it didn't come from a news article or something I heard on the radio. That's generally where the other sources of inspiration have been. But this one was actually very much character-driven. So I love movies and books where you root for the bad guy or woman. And I was really intrigued how film directors or screenwriters and and authors managed to put you in the situation where you're rooting for a person that you know you shouldn't, but can't help but root for. And I thought, hmm, that seems like an interesting challenge. I, I think I would like to do that. So that was where the initial idea came from. So it really was character driven. And Lucas's character arrived pretty quickly, including his voice. He was very, very gracious to show up quite promptly when I needed him. And that's how I developed the story about this guy with a big chip on his shoulder, taking out a hit on his very wealthy wife and and then being messed with, essentially. So that was that was where the inspiration came from. Yeah, and you did an excellent job there because we do find ourselves rooting for him. And this is something I've also been thinking about a lot lately because I've just finish watching Ozarks and boy there's a ton of characters in that where you are rooting for them and then you find yourself going wait hold on a minute this is not a great person why am I so invested in this person why am I rooting for them they do terrible terrible things and so I think that's a huge challenge for writers is to portray these kinds of characters and get readers invested so what was your tip there what was the trick you used to kind of make him someone that the reader immediately got on board with despite knowing that there were these dodgy things that he was up to there are a couple of things one of them was to make him relatable so I like unlikable characters I don't think that Lucas is unlikable he might be despicable in certain ways for sure but I don't believe he's unlikable. And personally, I like unlikable characters, providing I understand them, providing I understand why they are the way they are. I don't think you can have an evil person just for the sake of needing to have one to pit against your protagonist. I think you need to give them background and so that the reader understands why. You know, why is Lucas doing this? What is Okay, yeah, he wants some money. He wants Michelle's fortune. But why? What for? So... I gave him background and context. That was one thing. His upbringing wasn't idyllic. He had a couple of tragedies in his life, fell in with the wrong crowd, so that the reader really gets that there are, there's more than one layer to this guy. The other thing I did was give him a sense of humour. Some might not like his sense of humour. I do because it's mine. Um, so <laughs> he's very he's he's dry. He's sarcastic. And he was a lot of fun to be around. It was a lot of fun to be in his head, to basically have the reader have unfiltered access to a killer's mind. What is that like? And I found him surprisingly funny and charming, which he would be to be able to charm his way into somebody's life and, and con. He's a con artist. And the third thing I did was I gave him a dog. 
<laughs> so I actually literally took the Save the Cat, which is based on, it was a screenplay book, which is based on the idea that if you have a person that you want your audience to root for, give them a pet, make them do something to redeem themselves right from the beginning so that the audience goes, yeah, I'm I'm on board with him or her or them. So those are the three things that I uh, already knew right from the beginning that I needed to really be careful with and built those into the book. And it also helps that we do not especially love Michelle in terms of who she is, the kind of person she is. And so if we don't feel particularly connected to the person that they're getting rid of, etc., we feel more on board with them because we're like, oh, I'd also hate her in real life. That's very true. Although having said that, you as the reader, because it's Lucas's story, you receive Lucas's version of Michelle. If you met her, you might not feel that way, but you receive or see things through Lucas's eyes. And I forgot one other thing that I did, which was give him an antagonist give the antagonist, Lucas, the bad guy, somebody who's worse than him, enter Bobby Boyle, his arch nemesis. So yes, that's another trick. Give the bad guy somebody worse to to fight, to go up against, essentially. Yeah, because the bad guy is never the bad guy in their own mind. They see themselves as the good guy in their own story, and therefore someone else is the bad guy. So it's all framing and positioning. And, you know, we often tell ourselves lies. We sort of justify shitty behavior in certain ways because that's human nature and I really love unreliable narrators but especially when they feel reliable so we get on board with them and that's tough to do so for any of our listeners out there who are doing this kind of thing definitely get this book study it see how Hannah did it now Hannah the last time we had you on the show we spoke about plotting and structuring and outlining your novel this time I'd really like us to zoom in more than that and I want to focus on writing on a scene by scene or a chapter by chapter level because a story an entire novel is broken up into chapters and it's broken up into scenes and you can't keep readers turning pages to get to act two to get to act three if they aren't wanting to tear through each of those building blocks along the way and that's something you do incredibly incredibly well you pace yourself brilliantly revealing only as much as we kind of need to know at that moment keeping us intrigued so that we want to get to the next clue and the next as we work through all of this so do you have a process for that because I know you said before that you do plot you outline you plan all of this but how do you decide how you're going to break that up chapter by chapter and scene by scene well thank you for the lovely compliments first of all (laughs) that's really kind of you I do think a lot about the pacing when I'm plotting. And I think the tools that I use, Save the Cat, which I mentioned, the screenwriting, those help with the pacing already because there's a certain structure, there's a certain flow. So I know that that has helped me. In fact, I'd say since I started using that tool in particular, the pacing has become better in my books. And it's still it's still a learning process, a work in progress. So, for example... You will remember me as a bit of an anomaly, and we discussed that one at length, why it was so hard with amnesia and stuff. But I'd say, Sister Dear, there were some pacing issues where we moved some scenes around with my editor or shortened them. With Never Coming Home, I think there were only two that I moved around slightly to up the pace. And with the book for 2023, there were none. There's nothing, I didn't need to move any chapters around. So I think that's that also comes with experience, both from reading and from writing. So essentially, a, a few things that I picked up is that you always want to give new information. As you mentioned, each chapter has to contain something new. It can't be a recap, especially if you have multiple perspectives. It can't be a recap of what's already happened, of what somebody, what another character went through. There might be hints of it, sure, but you always have to bring in new information, give new clues, new bits of the puzzle. At the same time, you cannot keep withholding information from the reader just for the sake of it, because if you do, the reader gets frustrated. Just tell me already, why is this a big secret? And then the reveal comes for whatever that part of the mystery is. 
And the reader thinks, well, you could have told me that five chapters ago. What was the point of withholding that? Readers are really smart. So basically, once I've plotted and I'm starting to write the chapters, it's really through the editing phase when I think about, are they in the right place? Is this, if it's feeling slow to me to get to the point, it will definitely feel slow to the reader. So I'm very aware of that as I'm reading it. And I'd say at the beginning, the first couple of passes, it's more difficult because there's a lot of editing going on. A lot. You know, you're rewriting stuff, you're moving things around. It's really during the la- that the latter passes where I'm reading the book, say, over three days instead of three weeks, where I'm thinking, okay, this is working, but hang on a minute. I'm in chapter 19. Hmm, maybe I should move this up a little bit. Maybe the, I need to reveal this earlier or withhold a bit more or add at least a hint or a detail or something. So it's really during the, the, the last three, four passes that I really can ascertain whether the flow is working or not. And then it goes to my editor and she'll then determine whether I was right or not. <laughs> so that's generally how I do it. How about you? What I love particularly about Scrivener is that you can add keywords when you're busy in a chapter or a scene. So you can add keywords for which specific characters are in that scene, where it's taking place, if it's a dual timeline, which timeline it is, etc. And then I like to add a keyword there for my reveals. So every time there's like a reveal, I put in the keyword there so that later I can search keywords and look at which chapters the reveals are in and see if they're kind of close enough, etc. But I'm not a plotter and an outliner like you are. I'm very envious of that quality. So when you know that upfront that there's certain reveals, let's say there's 10 big clues or 10 big reveals, do you write them all down and keep track of them and then tick them off as you address them? Or is it more organic than that? I'd say most of them are in that, not most of them, that's not true, but the plot, the outline comes into that a lot. So my outline, not for Never Coming Home, but the one for 2023, I think in total was 20 pages, which is probably the longest I've I've done. So a lot of them will be included in that. But then there's always, there's always more because I can't foresee every twist. Otherwise, I'd write the whole thing. <laughs> so I don't have a list of twists per se that I make ahead of time. But when I'm reading through the book and editing it, I will write down, generally, it's just called things to feed in. So and so is an only child because there's no mention of it or just something that could be a hook. It could be a, a clue. It could be a reveal. Something that I add It's just as I'm reading, I think oh, I've, I've got to go back and find somewhere to add this in. Those are the little, I call them the sparkly touches, the sparkle in somebody's eye in a painting, the little highlight in the hair. I don't paint, but that's how I would imagine it. So that's really, those come at the end. But yes, I do have a running list of stuff to add. And going back to what you said about nonlinear timelines, going back to how to pace that, I've written two non-linear timeline books. My first two, actually, because (laughs) why make it simple from the beginning when you can complicate things? So The Neighbours was non-linear plus four points of view. And I remember my editor saying that there was a particular scene in the past for one of the characters that I'd set in the first timeline, chronologically speaking. And she said, it's a lovely scene. It's great, but it doesn't do anything. Because basically it just shows the character Nate that he's a good guy, he's a nice guy, he's kind. We already know that. So it's not actually doing anything. And she said, when you have a a dual timeline, non-linear timeline, make sure that the chapters set in the past have an impact, do something for the chapters set in the present. And I've never forgotten that. So I actually saved that scene. And for the book I'm writing now, I used a chunk of it. So it didn't actually go to waste. It just had to go into a a book a few novels later. I love that. I try and do the same. It doesn't always work, but it is magical when it does. And that brings us to my next point. So when I'm teaching creative writing, I say to my students that a scene or a chapter has to do two things at once. It needs to reveal character and reveal character in a way that it's not something we knew before. So if we knew, like you said, before that Nate was a nice guy, 
And there's a new scene that just kind of, again, shows us Nate is a nice guy. You're just belaboring a point. You haven't added anything new to the reader's understanding of this character. So it needs to reveal something about character that they didn't know before. And it needs to move the plot forward. And that's especially true of backstory. And people don't think about backstory in that way because backstory takes the plot backwards. But whatever's revealed in that backstory needs to be essential for the understanding of what is happening in the present story so that we can move forward with an understanding of this new knowledge we have gained. What's your approach to that? Do you agree with that? Disagree? Is there anything else you'd add to that? 100% agree. You have to drive the story forward, no matter the timeline that you're in. And if it's a, a linear timeline, it's the same. When I approach my chapters, and this comes more already during the initial writing stage, sometimes the ends of the chapters don't change at all. But I'm always very conscious of my editor sitting on my shoulder saying, don't give the reader an opportunity to put the book down. So you want your chapters basically to be mini cliffhangers, to either somebody arrives somewhere or finds something, whatever it is, or something's revealed. So there's a, oh my God, what's going to happen now? So almost a mini cliffhanger every time. And somebody recently told me, it was Kathleen Fox, she said, don't write a scene where the character goes to bed. <laughs> because then, oh yeah, okay, I'm tired. I'm going to put the book down. So don't give the readers. And I'd say also the same applies backstory and dialogue. The same applies. Dialogue needs to have a purpose. It's not just chit chat about how's the weather. Um, it's not just, oh, hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> Would you like a cup of tea? No, it has to, the conversation has to do something for the plot. So I'm always very aware of that too, every time I write. Yeah, and something you did really well in this particular book is early on there is dialogue that gives us kind of expositional information that we needed to know in terms of his wife is missing because when we come in, he's at the hospital with his mother-in-law and then there's a conversation with another character that reveals this information to us as opposed to giving it to us in exposition. And this is always tricky to do because the reader generally clocks on that they're being fed information or that they're being manipulated, but you did it in a way where these characters use a kind of shorthand that because they both know what they're speaking about as opposed to do you remember that time your wife went missing has she been found yet and these are things that is especially important in that kind of dialogue that reveals information that you don't want it to feel like an info dump so that's very important there as well and and what you were saying earlier also makes me think of the domino the dominoes falling analogy. If at any point in your book, a scene or a chapter can be taken out without the reader ending up being lost, without them going, I have no idea what's happening now. What what the heck is, how did we get here? Then that scene is not doing the heavy lifting and it can be taken out. So if you as our listeners are ever if you're not sure if that scene is doing the heavy lifting or if the chapter is doing the heavy lifting, give it to a brand new reader who hasn't read any of this before and take that out and see if they can carry on reading without going, uh-oh, uh, I'm not quite sure what's happening here. So now you don't take out those kinds of chapters at all because you know each scene in each chapter is doing its heavy lifting. Is that right? Well, I haven't in the last in the last two books, but never say never. I think because I'm now, I'm working on my eighth book, my eighth book, there's a certain experience that comes with that. So I, I hope that by the time the manuscript gets to my editor, I've been able to spot the bigger things that aren't working. Unless, I, as with You Will Remember Me, I remember sending it to her and saying, I need help here because I know it's not working, but I, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why. But I think that's something that does come with experience. But don't quote me on that because I'm about to embark on writing my next thriller. And that one's probably the most complicated that I've done because it should have narrative and interviews and news articles. So I've not done that structure before. So that's brand new for me. I'd say the most extreme example of taking stuff out one was You Will Remember Me because it really needed a, a severe haircut and rejig and it was just convoluted. 
But the other one was Her Secret Son, which was my third book. And I'd actually plotted it and pitched it as a one character, so one point of view character book, Josh, who carried the whole thing. But when I wrote it, I included a second one. I'm not quite sure why, but when, and it was at the end that I added it in. And my editor called me and she said, this second guy, second point of view, did you add him at the end? And I said, yeah. And she said, yeah, he's got to go. Now, luckily, it was only about 10,000 words. But the weird thing was, to your point, I took all of those chapters out and it barely made a dent. It didn't matter. So I understood then why she said, no, get him out of here. He does need to go. And then I expanded Josh's chapters. So that was probably the most extreme. And I thought I was being really smart by, hey, if I add another point of view that gives more mystery. And no, it didn't. It just didn't work is what it did. (laughs) It's amazing how editors always sniff that out. We think we could bury these little things and they always call us on it, which is frustrating, but that's part of the process. And for our listeners, when I'm reading and I find myself skimming through a book, trying to get to the next spot, it's all of those spots that I'm skimming are parts that I already knew that I'm bored and I'm like, why am I being told this already? I knew this. So we need to remember that our readers are smart. They pick up on things very quickly and we feel like we need to belabor a point, but that's where our readers end up skimming and Not all readers will skim. Some will just put the book down. So, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, we're putting Never Coming Home on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, if you buy it through there, you support Hannah, you support an independent bookstore, and you support the podcast at the same time. We can't wait to have you back for the next book and then the next one. I'm excited to do that. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. If books about writing and story theory have confused or frustrated you, then there's a new podcast you need to listen to. It's called Story Nerd and it's co-hosted by two literary editors who are also writers. On the show, Valerie Francis and Melanie Hill analyze a different film each week so that we can all deepen our knowledge and understanding of storytelling principles. Their goal is to demystify story theory so writers spend less time studying and more time writing. And at the end of each episode, they suggest an action item so that you can immediately put the lessons on the episode to work in your manuscript. The more we understand how stories work, the better our stories will be. You can find the podcast at storynerd.simplecast. That's simplecast.com. And it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more than a dozen other platforms. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the beta reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. Today's guest has 20 years of experience in the publishing industry with expertise in business strategy for authors and publishers. She's the editor of The Hot Sheet, the essential industry newsletter for authors, and has previously worked for Writer's Digest and the Virginia Quarterly Review. In 2019, she was awarded Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World. Her newsletter was awarded Media Outlet of the Year in 2020. Her newest book is The Business of Being a Writer from the University of Chicago Press. Publishers Weekly said that it is destined to become a staple reference book for writers and those interested in publishing careers. Also, in collaboration with the Authors Guild, she wrote The Authors Guild Guide to Self-Publishing. In addition to being a professor with The Great Courses, she maintains an award-winning blog for writers at janefriedman.com. Her expertise has been been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New York Post, Publishers Weekly, NPR, PBS, NBC, CBS, and the National Press Club, and many other outlets. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Jane Friedman. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's mind-blowing to get to chat to someone of your expertise and experience, Jane. So we're really going to be picking your brain today. What we're going to start with is I want to ask you how the industry is faring, because especially we have so many emerging writers who are seeing on Twitter how many editors seem to be leaving publishing, how many agents seem to be leaving publishing, and they kind of reach out, freaked out, going, are there still people in this industry who we can be submitting work to? So, so can you speak about bit about that and the industry in general? Well, first, I would advise calm. I would say for every single one of the 20 years I've been in the industry, the sky has been falling. So just realize that, yes, it can produce anxiety when you see some of these changes. But I think what you're seeing is a healthy discussion. You're seeing also a healthy industry, an industry that where sales have grown 9% in the last year, which is historic. Book publishing is a mature industry. You don't normally see the sort of growth uh, we've had over the pandemic. And so far in 2022, we're seeing that growth stick. So I just want to like preface everything else that I might say that might be scary to, to offer that bigger picture. People are buying books, people are reading, which means we need editors and we need agents to help facilitate commerce. So that said, the publishing industry is one where there's rampant overwork, understaffing, arguably, um, but of course, it depends on who you talk to, right? So the further up you go the executive ladder, the more you might find 
well, you know, resistance to some of the ideas that are coming up from the junior staff or from the people who are emerging into their careers. But there's no question that people are demanding better treatment as they are, I think, across every sector, every every business sector throughout the world. We are at a very unique time and place right now, coming out of the pandemic, one hopes. So I there's just a lot of things that are changing for everybody. And so that we're, I think we're seeing this period of great reckoning. Some call it the great resignation. You know, publishing is not immune from larger events in the world. It's going to be affected. Yeah. And some of the tweets I saw, they really made me think because some of these more junior people were saying that to be in publishing, you need to live in New York, but their salaries are something like $40,000 a year. And how the hell can you live in New York on $40,000 a year? So then what happens there is it's attracting the kind of people who have perhaps parents or built-in infrastructure who can financially support them while they are pursuing their dreams. But of course, this creates this kind of gatekeeper instance in which these are affluent white people who are then able to do this job potentially, if they've got parents who are able to support them, which means that, again, we're not getting people of color or perhaps people from more diverse backgrounds into publishing. So for me, this seems like a really good kind of self-correct in a way. What do you think? I agree. The publishing industry has never been known for its diversity (laughs) in more ways than one. You typically, yes, needed some sort of outside support system, whether that came in the form of a spouse or family wealth or whatever you were able to grab at, uh, whether second and third jobs. So yes, I didn't have to work in the New York-based industry. I came to all of it through the Midwest, and I worked at a mid-sized publisher in the Midwest, where even, you know, if you take your $40,000 or $50,000 job in New York and then put it in Cincinnati, cut the salary in half, like it's underpaid everywhere because the job has a certain level of status, prestige, and glamour associated with it. And people just feel lucky to be working in the industry at all. And so that is also contributing to some of this problem is just the status and prestige of the industry. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just trying to explain the social dynamics that have allowed us to come to this breaking point. Yeah, I think there was a cartoon about some guy whose job it was to clean up elephant poop for the circus. Somebody asked him how much he got paid and it was nothing. It was peanuts that that the elephants were getting. And they asked, why would you work in this? And he said, what? And not be in showbiz? So this seems to be, you know, what we're having all around. If you want prestige and glamour in the industry, you get paid nothing. But at the same time, as we're hearing that a ton of people are leaving, I've also been hearing about people being replaced. So there are editors who are being put into these positions. It's not that publishers are sitting without five editors and therefore aren't buying books. Is that right? Acquisitions are up. Like by, I mean, it's really hard to measure these things because there's like no official body that's calculating the book deals. But the closest we have is Publishers Marketplace and its deals database. It's been tracking deals for more than 20 years. And so Michael Cater of Publishers Lunch often crunches the numbers. And yes, acquisitions are up pretty much across the board and have been for the last couple years. So we know that editors are buying books. But the kind of the paradoxical thing is that you also hear that it's taking longer for submission rounds to happen. Like agents may have received a response in four to six weeks during so-called normal times. Now you're looking at double, triple that time. And so there's definitely, the pandemic has given publishing this great burst of growth, but we're not necessarily seeing the reinvestment that needs to be made in staffing and making sure that people can do their jobs in a way that's effective and isn't making everyone anxious. So yeah, it's, I'm not sitting in those boardrooms and seeing the discussions or hearing the discussions that are happening. But just from my experience in corporate publishing, I bet there is just, well, greed. (laughs) Greed that drives the decision making and wanting a good return for shareholders. And there's always a big reluctance to increase overhead costs. Yeah, yeah. Right. So as we come out of the pandemic, can you tell us what's selling, what's driving growth and other trends? And just for our listeners, I'm asking Jane this from purely being interested perspective. It's very dangerous for writers to try and chase 
trends because we'll see that suddenly books about yetis are selling and then we start writing the book about a yeti but that could take six months to a year and then it's still the agent getting it then it's revising then it's going out on submission and by that time the yeti phase could be over so whatever information we're about to get process it and understand that we can't necessarily chase these trends okay jane Excellent preface. Thank you. So adult fiction is what's driving sales currently, and it drove sales in 2021. It's driving sales in 2022. Now, why is that? It's particularly remarkable because if you look pre-pandemic, adult fiction was very soft, even declining, very worrisome trend. So now it's it's the star of the show, and part of it's because of TikTok. So TikTok or BookTok has really sold books in this organic way, meaning publishers are not paying for ads to drive this growth. It's being driven by just what we would call ordinary readers, some of whom have become influencers on BookTok, talking about and recommending books with passion. And so the market is really responding to that. And I think if you just look at like the most recent snapshot of sales, and this comes from NPD Bookscan, the big company that tracks book sales in the United States, they saw, you know, within the last couple months that it was about 90 titles, which is a drop in the bucket, 90 titles that have driven about 70% of the sales growth for adult fiction this year. I mean, that is just, for me, that is mind-blowing. So it's having this really outsized effect on what's happening on the bestseller lists and what we're seeing trend. A lot of these are backlist books. So it's not the latest novel that's coming out. There are books that are being discussed and cherished and appreciated on BookTok that have come out years ago. And so this creates a fascinating opportunity for publishers to look at their backlist and decide, are there things here we should repackage and reissue for a, a younger or newer generation of readers who are on BookTok? So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. I mean, I think it, this is something that's, it's both a good thing and a bad thing for authors querying today or who have a new book coming out. I think it's harder than ever for debuts, but for authors who have a good hearty backlist, backlist discovery uh, has never been easier. So I guess that that gets a little bit away from like what's selling now, but I think adult fiction backlist. And then if you add on to that, what's happening in the children's market with comics and manga and graphic novels, that's another huge growth area, something that's taken off in the past couple of years that also has a corollary in online literature and the sort of entertainment you see streaming on Netflix. So again, bigger picture trends that are affecting books. Do you think the pandemic had something to do with the children's market suddenly booming? Because there were kids at home who were were supposed to be doing online schooling. Their parents were working from home. There's only so much of the stuff they could manage. So do you think some of that was just keeping these kids entertained? In 2020, the huge growth category that pushed everything was children's nonfiction, specifically nonfiction that was going to help parents at home with homeschooling or to entertain or educate or distract their children, as the case might be. Uh, but that's now gone back to like human sales levels. And yes, I think a lot of the activity that you're seeing in the children's market has to do with parents having something for their children if they happen to be stuck at home. But right now, the market is going back to more like just conventional ups and downs. We're not seeing the pandemic effect as much this year. Yeah, I mean, for the pandemic, I think that explained to me why books like Where the Crawdads Sing was on the bestseller list for so long. Not that that isn't an amazing book. I love that book and I love Delia. But I think because people were not going into bookstores, they were not being hand sold these new titles. And so the only books that they were hearing about were the books that everybody else is reading, like Where the Crawdads Sing. And it'll be interesting to me now after the movie comes out, I think next month, how that will drive sales again because it feels like everyone in the world has read this book. So who is there left to sell this book to? Oh, there, there'll be more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and the TikTok trend in terms of adult literature for me was very interesting because, you know, I honestly would have thought that the TikTok trend would have been pushing YA novels because you would have thought that TikTok would be more a younger person using it and therefore they would be reading YA and that would drive those kinds of sales. But what was also interesting is how many self-published 
books suddenly became big names thanks to TikTok. The one I'm thinking about, and we interviewed her on the podcast, was the author of The Spanish Love Deception. So that was self-published. A TikToker read it, I think filmed themselves crying about it or something or freaking out about the main character and being in love with him. And then that's how she got her traditional book deal. So in terms of self-publishing, because I know that this is also something you're quite an expert on, Jane, like, do you feel for authors who feel like they are not getting full manuscript requests from agents They've been querying for ages. They're just not seeing anything. Do you think that this is a viable option for them? Obviously, not all self-published books will be like the Spanish Love Deception and will find a big audience. But what do you think their chances are in terms of self-publishing? The story you described is really what I consider a lightning strike. It's not something that anyone can bank on happening. And I certainly wouldn't self-publish with that as the your envisioned end goal to to go viral on TikTok. That's you're going to be disappointed. It's kind of like hoping you're the Martian. His took was self-published and took off through word of mouth. But self-publishing is totally a viable option as long as you realize its business model is fundamentally different than that of a traditional publishing author. And you normally need to be committed to it over three, four, five, or more titles. And you can't really steer the ship differently if you're writing a series. So if you start self-publishing a romance or mystery series, and by book two or three, you're like, I'm done with this self-publishing thing. I want a traditional. You're not going to be able to go pitch book three in your series. The publisher will want all of it or none of it. So I think authors need to think long-term when they're making these decisions rather than going off the self-pub as the fallback for a project or thinking that somehow it's going to turn into traditional success. Yeah. And then there's trends like Bridgerton. For me, it's been fascinating to see the huge effect that Bridgerton's had in terms of those backlist sales like you were talking about, because I'm seeing more and more authors' backlist suddenly being repackaged. There's kind of a Bridgerton-esque cover being put on it. And it's like, if you loved Bridgerton, then you're going to love this. And it's easier for the marketplace to turn that around because those books were already published. They were already edited. They were already out there. It's just a case of repackaging them. Yeah, that exactly speaks to what I mentioned earlier about the potential to repackage backlist books that maybe haven't been updated or redesigned in 10, 20, 30, more, maybe even longer years. And so it can have new life if you make it resonate with today's readership. Something that you mentioned in your newsletter that goes out in, in the hot sheet that made me extremely happy, my agent and I actually sent it to each other squealing, was the mention of older women being represented in fiction, because this isn't something I was aware of. And, and I think you said in the hot sheet that it's more self-publishing and it's series that this is happening with. But, you know, my book that's coming out in August is about six witches who are in their 80s and they are bringing down the patriarchy. And when I saw that this was now a trend was older women in fiction, I was extremely happy about that. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So this is a category established, as far as I know, entirely by self-publishing authors called Paranormal Women's Fiction. There was a group of 13 indie authors writing in this category and decided to basically establish, you know, we are a category now, we are writing about midlife women or later coming into their own and kind of tackling, uh, finding themselves and tackling some of the challenges of midlife. So it's something that is really popular on Kindle. I'm not saying that it can't succeed in traditional publishing. It's something that I'm watching closely because I'm really curious to see if this is an area that where traditional publishers pick up on something that they have entirely missed, which of course happens all the time. But now we have self-publishing authors who identify these markets that have been underserved or ignored. And I'm very optimistic. I think it's a wonderful category to watch. And you would think that it would be a great category as well for film adaptations, because we have got so many amazing actresses who are in their 60s, 70s, who we should be creating these brilliant roles for, because it it was like, well, you were the girlfriend or the wife or the secretary or the whatever, and then you were the mom, and then you potentially the grandma, but that's about it in terms of, of the range for that. So it would be really interesting to see how many of these things do get picked up for film. Yeah, it's another type of diversity 
I think we need age diversity. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so Jane, let's talk about your content on your blog in terms of your newsletters and your online courses, because I feel like I only discovered these very late and I kind of want to smack myself for that. So I don't want our listeners to make the same mistake. So can you tell them what resources are available to them? So I have a lot of free information about publishing traditional and self-publishing that's available at my site for free. That's at janefriedman.com. And I've even put the most popular posts like right there in the menu. So you don't have to look very far to find that. The two things that I offer that I'm most known for are online classes. So not necessarily taught by me, but by guests. And so these are webinars that run about three times a month on all sorts of craft and business topics. And then I also, as you've mentioned, I have a newsletter called The Hot Sheet, which is trend reporting and business reporting that's geared for an an audience of authors, although I certainly have a share of agents and and other people associated with the business who like to read it to stay up to date on, on what's happening. So I also have a free newsletter called Electric Speed. So for those who really like digital tool recommendations, I round up some of my recent discoveries and I send that out every two weeks. So all of that can be found at janefriedman.com. I mention basically everything of relevance on the homepage. Wow, that's amazing. And so much of that is free. I don't know how you find the time, Jane. <laughs> I feel like just doing this podcast takes up all my time and you're and you putting me to shame here. Right. So for our listeners, go to janefriedman.com, find that resource. But as well, Jane, I know that you speak at a ton of conventions and all kinds of things. So if people do want to see you speak and see what you've got coming up, is there a place on your website as well where they can see that? Indeed, there's a speaking tab where you can see where I'll be speaking in person and also at virtual conferences. I'm going to be at the Writer's Digest annual conference this summer in New York City. I'll be at the Women's Fiction Association in the fall, and there are others. Amazing. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another session where we answer your questions about writing or publishing. If you do have questions, we ask that you call in and leave the question for us and we will answer it on the show. It's becoming a little bit difficult for us to reply to questions on social media and through email just because of the volume. So head to our website and we do have a new website up. It's called theshitaboutwriting.com and all the tabs are there and the one is there for your questions. So call us and we'll do our best to get to that answer. Right, we're now going to go for our first question. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I'm currently writing women's fiction in the first person and have heard from beta readers that the voice is strong and sounds like me, which is lovely feedback, but does have me wondering slash worrying, am I giving away my voice to my character? Would love to know your thoughts on first person versus third person when you're a quote unquote voicey writer. And from a career perspective, does third person offer advantages in retaining voice through future writings that should be considered? Thank you for taking the time to answer our questions and for all the work you do on the podcast and beyond. Carly, will you answer that for us? Okay, so our question about women's fiction voice. The first versus third thing is always an interesting dilemma. To me, it depends on so many things. First, no matter what is going to sound voicier because you are in the character's head. I looked back through a couple of my clients' recent manuscripts, kind of figuring out you know, if I can answer this question through through experience. But really, I think it just depends on what your objectives are for your character. Having a voicey novel isn't a bad thing. I think what you're concerned about is that if you're putting too much of yourself into it and you're thinking like, oh, everybody's going to think it's me, right? They're going to think I am the character. So 
no matter what with your first novel, if this, I'm assuming this is your first novel, no matter what, there ends up being a lot of you in your first novel. It's as you grow as an author and as you develop and as you grow that you kind of not emerge out of that, but you kind of, you learn, you know, what to leave on the page and, and figuring out what is yours is what is the character. So to me, this is just kind of a debut novel dilemma, not so much a voice question. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Just write the book of your heart, write the book you're writing. Try not to overwhelm yourself with, with questions of voice right now. A memorable voicey book isn't a bad thing. So I wouldn't make this your your number one worry with your novel. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. All right, let's go to question two. Hi there. One quick question, and that is, should I describe my novel as dual timeline if, in practice, one of the two timelines takes up, let's call it a quarter or fewer of the pages? So it's mostly in the present. There are some chapters that are in the past timeline, but again, not nearly as many as are in the present. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, Cece, will you answer that for us? I would say yes. I would write that it is dual timeline. And you are allowed to specify that it's dual timeline with a 25-75% split or, you know, whatever it actually is. That being said, because I understand why you're asking this question, because if I did request a full without knowing it was dual timeline, and then, you know, I sat down to read it and I realized that there was like 25% of the book in a different timeline, I would not feel that the author withheld information from me. Um, by not specifying that. So I totally see why you're asking the question. If for whatever reason you would prefer not to mention it, I don't think it's a problem. But I I would, because I think it's it's metadata that's important to your book. Um, it honestly makes it sound even more appealing to me for my personal taste. And, and yeah, and I, I, I think that you should mention it. Awesome. All right, question three. Hi, thank you so much for the podcast and all that you do. It really is so helpful. My question is that when I'm going through and looking for an agent that might be a match, I'm noticing some are listed as being members of AAR or AALA. I was wondering if this is something that should be, I should keep an eye out for. What are the benefits to the agents? What are the benefits to the potential writer? And if it is a red flag, if somebody, for example, doesn't have any of those memberships, there's not really very many details available that I'm finding. So I'd really appreciate your insight. Thank you again. Kali, will you answer that for us? So there are a few different agents organizations. In the States, it recently rebranded itself to the AALA. In Canada, it's called PACLA, the Professional Association of Canadian Literary Agents. In the UK, they have their their separate ones. So I, I don't consider it a red flag if an agent is not a part of one of these agent organizations. And there's a few reasons for it. Number one, I wasn't a member of one for a really long time. And that didn't mean I was a bad agent or an uninformed agent. There's a lot of different ways to get mentorship. One of the things that the organizations do, I think recently they've been a lot better in terms of mentoring and providing resources. In the past, it has actually been, in my opinion, a little bit kind of snotty because you have to like get a certain number of sales and like come into the club and you know there's a certain threshold of things and so it ends up being quite elitist and exclusive and a lot of junior agents that needed that level of support weren't getting them from these organizations so that's kind of in the past another thing in the past that they weren't really interested in was they had some clauses in their membership information that said that they weren't able to teach Agents weren't allowed to teach. So if you were going to be a member of the what, what was formerly the AALA, you weren't allowed to do anything else other than agent. You had to be a full-time agent, which a lot of people know, you know, when you're starting out as an agent, it's a commission-based job. And so a lot of people need other, you know, other forms of income in order to make it as an agent. So that kind of made a lot of these organizations not accessible to more junior agents, which meant a lot of junior agents weren't a part of the organizations, which meant, you know, didn't mean they weren't bad agents. So that's kind of the long spiel. I have a lot of opinions on these agents associates obviously. But I think they are becoming a lot more friendly to more junior agents and a lot more mentorship oriented, but absolutely not a red flag if anybody isn't a part of them. Wonderful. All right. Next question. Hi, it's been suggested to me that a first chapter should consist of only one scene. I hope this isn't the case, but I thought I'd check with you guys. Right. Cece, will you tackle this one for us? Very happy to report that you are right. A first chapter can have more than one scene. That is not a problem at all. You don't have to take my word for it. Just 
know, go to your bookshelf and pick up a few of your favorite books. I'm willing to bet that at least one of them is going to have more than one scene in the first chapter. I did this exercise yesterday with, you know, the three last books I read and they all had more than one scene in them. If for whatever reason the feedback from your your critique group has to do with the transitions within your scene, you might want to look into that in terms of the craft or Perhaps you might look, want to look into inserting line breaks or section breaks because they're very, very easy resource, kind of like timestamps that just work so well when you know how to use them. But yeah, you can have you can have more than one scene for sure. Thanks, Cece. My advice there is to just be aware of which scenes you group together. So some writers tend to make their chapters overly long, which sort of frustrates readers. Readers tend to prefer shorter chapters. And sometimes writers will put sort of three scenes in an opening chapter that are very different scenes at very different times, perhaps with different characters, in which case that would work best to have each of those scenes as their own chapter. All right, and here's our last question. Why is it that some publishers try to attempt to screen your content before accepting your manuscript? America has a First Amendment right to freedom of speech. This is something that I have run into having to pre-submit my manuscript and have it screened. I really want to answer this one, but I don't feel like I have enough context or understanding. So when people send in these questions, we don't get information about them. So I would love to reach out to you and, and help you answer this one better. So could you just call in and give us a little bit more context? We would just love to love to answer this one. Thank you. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right. So that's it for this week's questions. Remember, phone in, ask us, give us as much detail as you possibly can. And we'll get to that as soon as we can. Hey, Bianca, here are two fabulous writing opportunities for your listeners. First, write around the world. It's a chance for you to experience the magic of the AWA method delivered by a wide variety of facilitators, an opportunity to generate surprising new writing and to hear immediately what's working in the piece. And it's a fundraiser that supports the social justice work of Amherst writers, funding the training of facilitators to work with underserved and unheard populations, including Black, Indigenous, and other racialized people. A chance to do good work, both creatively and socially. Workshops are by donation, 10, 20, 30 bucks. Go to amherstwriters.org. Click on the Write Around the World link. Workshops are offered at all times throughout the month of May. And as for this summer, haven't you always wanted to spend a week diving into your writing during the day, then diving into a lake afterwards with drinks on the dock after that? Well, come to the Halliburton School of the Arts this summer, a three-hour drive north of Toronto. So worth the effort. This program is operated by Fleming College and is open to writers of all levels of experience. It is a renowned program in an idyllic setting. I will be running a workshop August 15th to 19th using the AWA method. Please go to my website, susiewheelahan.ca, S-U-S-I-E-W-H-E-L-E-H-A-N, Click on available workshops. You'll find lots of information about the programs and accommodation possibilities. Come on, dive in. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom 
to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.